Hello and good evening, everyone. Um, as you know, at the time of recording, we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, we're now officially in its second year. It's February 2021. And we've heard a lot about what effect it has on our patients, on the way we work, as surgeons, on the allied professionals. But one group that I think is a bit underrepresented is the medical students. Their training has really been affected by this and we want to try and highlight it. So I have with me um, a friend of the podcast, my colleague and friend, Jill Hardman. How are you doing, Jill? I'm good, thank you, Ceci. Nice to be here again. Thank you for having me back. No, no, I mean, thank you for coming back. Um, this very much was your idea. Um, you're a mentor to some of these medical students and I know some of them through the quality and diversity work I've been doing. And it's just fantastic that they are able to join us today. So um, we'll just have a nice little chit chat and hopefully some real hard hitting issues will be talked about today. Okay, so I have, I mean, people can't see them because they're on my screen, but I've got a lovely group of ladies today. Um, we'll just start with a round of introductions. So first of all, I've got Maria. Who are you? What part of the country do you work in and what stage of training are you? Um, hiya, my name's Maria. I'm a fourth year medical student at UCL uh, based in London and I'm also the Surgical Society president. Fantastic, it's lovely to have you. Thank I've you. Felicity. Hi, my name's Felicity. I'm a third year medical student and I'm at Newcastle University. Fantastic. It's so nice to have you. Um, some of the listeners already know that Newcastle is actually the university I went to, so I'm so pleased to have you here. Um, I've got here um, at the bottom, Amrutha. My name is Amrutha. I'm a fourth year medical student at UCL as well. Lovely to have you. And at the bottom of my screen, I've got Tamara. Hello, I'm Tamara. I'm a fourth year medical student at University of Aberdeen. And last but not least, I've got Doyen. And I'm Doyen, and I'm also a fourth year medical student at Aberdeen. Great, it's so nice to have you all here. Now, um, the next thing we're going to do is we want to talk a little bit about what happened during the first wave of the, of the pandemic. And Jill and I have had lots of conversations about this, so I think it's wholly appropriate that she delve into this one. So um, why don't you take it away, Jill, and just ask our ladies what things have been like for them. Yeah, so um, what I'm really curious to find out about is exactly what's been your experience through the whole of the last 12 months. So, um, Maria, do you want to uh, start us off and just tell us a little bit about right back in the first wave back in March last year, where were you up to in your studies, where were you working and what things changed for you as a result of the pandemic? So when they announced the lockdown, I was halfway through my lab project and I was just about to get started and get some really great data. Shut the lab. All my poor cells died that I've been raising for a couple of months. <laughs> Very sad. Um, and then I just went home as soon as I could to be with my family for the lockdown. Um, it was really, really difficult, to be honest, because I'd spent months preparing and prepping my project. And just when I was about to collect some data, just as I was about to see something, everything shut. Um, so I ended up having to write my dissertation with absolutely zero data, nothing, which was an interesting project, um, but we move. <laughs> and now I'm in my fourth year, so I'm in my clinical studies, which have been severely disrupted. I'd say half of my teaching has now been online and it's quite difficult to learn about patients and learn about examining patients when you, you don't see any patients. Um, and yeah, I'd say that's what it's been like so far for the past 12 months. And I'm really pleased that we've managed to get sort of representatives from all over the country. So does that experience echo with everyone or is, is, have you had differing experiences during this? What about you, Felicity? How has the Northeast been treating you at this time? So I've been really lucky. Um, we do uh, clinical from third year. So this is my first sort of proper clinical year. And uh, the base unit that I'm in covers the whole of the width of the north of England. So as far as Carlisle on one side and Newcastle on the other. And from September to December, I was in Carlisle. And um, all our teaching was face to face still, which is something that I know a lot of people haven't had and was such a privilege and really helped us along. 
um, everyone in the hospital was really, really supportive and really fantastic. So we got quite a lot of hands on. It was actually quite nice to feel like we could help sort of the foundation doctors, a lot of whom had been sort of become foundation doctors early and maybe needed a little bit of a boost themselves. So we could sort of scuttle around and do bloods and things. Um, it isn't quite the same, especially now that I'm back in the Newcastle side. We're doing a lot more online teaching. Um, but yeah, I'm, I feel fortunate that we've managed to have a lot of face to face teaching still. And how about up in Aberdeen? Is this the same experience you guys have had in Scotland? I think it's a bit of a mixture, really, I'd say. Um, initially, when we first went into lockdown, um, we were preparing for exams. So we had three days. It was the Friday and our exam started the Monday. Um, so I remember walking home from the library and at 6pm we get an email saying that exams are cancelled. Um, so it was, it, it definitely was a mixture of emotions. Um, you know, no one likes exams, but you've been studying for so long. You just want to prove and show that you've got the knowledge. Um, so it was, it was a shame. Um, and, and like Mario said, we just wanted to get home and, and be with the family, really. Um, as for clinical, we started fourth year late. Um, well, we started on time, but it's supposed to be solely clinical. Um, but we had a lot of uh, online teaching at the start whilst they were preparing um, for us to kind of come back. Um, so we had, I think it was about six weeks or so online. Um, but then they got us back into the hospital. So we've been in the hospital ever since. Um, like Felicity said, it's not been the same. There's less patients to see, um, a lot of precautions. There's less time on the wards just because they're trying to sort of spread the, the time out evenly across the cohort. Um, but we are in most of the time. Yeah. Um, the timings of our time on wards have changed as well. So I've found that some of my colleagues have had night shifts or weekend shifts um, and just it varies from each department that you go into as well. So I'm going to come to Amrutha shortly because I know she has some direct experience of the COVID work but just to touch on some of the things that you've talked about so far. Um, Felicity you mentioned this kind of um, the positive aspects of feeling like you were all in it together and that you could be of support to other people and I'm keen to find out a bit more about what was the atmosphere like? What were people, um, how, were, how were people approaching you with this? Was it a supportive environment? Were people encouraging you and helping you to, uh, to adopt and to adapt to these new ways of working? I think um, we got quite a lot of emails where I think people had perhaps seen medical students perhaps um, not strictly coherent like you know uh, adopting all the rules and I think because we'd been brought out of uni in the March and then it was six months before we were in the hospital those were six months that all the hospitals had had time to adapt to um, social distancing and what their new rules were about where to sit and what to do and who you, how many people could be in a room that we'd just been all sort of stuck in our bedrooms and and you know home studies so it was a, it made any mistakes that we made, it kind of made them a bit more obvious. So we did get quite a few emails. Um, and I think oh, I think the, the difference in attitude, um, it didn't seem like a cohesive support. It didn't seem like a cohesive sort of negativity. I think some people were really grateful to have students and really saw us as like an extra pair of hands and, and really to get stuck in and see what, what clinical life is like. And I think other people sort of thought, well, we actually can't really spend our time and energy focused on you right now. So if you could go and sit in the corner and be quiet, that would be great. But I, it wasn't, none, neither of those attitudes was universal. I think they were as different as the people we were working with. And just in a similar vein, did you have any direct experiences where you were sent away from the wards where you, you were told, um, you know, we, we can't accommodate you here. We can't have that teaching session. We can't deliver that clinical training. Tamara, you mentioned being in the hospital and perhaps not having the same access to patients and wards. Mm -hmm. So personally, I haven't been sent, sent away, but I know um, Doyen recently got sent away um, just because. I mean, yeah, so um, I was on the, in the geriatric hospital, basically, and 
um, the ward I was on was um, closed because of COVID, but the university didn't know. So um, one of the consultants on the ward was like, just go home, go home for the rest of the week, don't come back in. And I was like, um, okay. So I messaged the uni, I was like, um, what do I do? And they're like, find another ward to go to. And I go to this ward, but there's no doctor on the ward because the doctor's on annual leave. So when he finally did come back on the Friday, he was like, okay, I'm really busy today, but um, if you can come back at 1 p.m. and we'll, we'll do something then. And then after sitting in like, the doctor's room for like an hour or so, he's like, you know what, just go home because I, I don't have the capacity to train you. And it's understandable because you're so busy, but at the same time, I could have spent the whole day at home studying instead mm -hmm. of coming to the hospital. Yeah. And the last bit for this sort of section, just to think about what was happening in that first wave. What was Christmas like? Did you manage to get the timing right? Did you manage to isolate and then get back to your parents? Were there any issues with getting home? For me, um, I think it was okay for me. I was on my GP block and our last week tends to be online. So I spent that week basically self-isolating and then flew home and got home in time, thank God. Did any of you have colleagues or friends who did struggle to to get back or any um, issues with going home to perhaps vulnerable parents or parents in, in vulnerable groups? I personally know a few people that had to stay in Aberdeen over the Christmas period, um, which is really sad. Um, and they, yeah, they spent Christmas on their own. Um, I fortunately was able to, to get back home, um, but I have family all across England and we were all, you know, ready to kind of come together. Um, and then it was announced that that was not possible. So that was really um, sad. Um, but fortunately I was able to get home to at least um, my parents. Um, my parents actually caught COVID a few weeks before Christmas. Um, so I was able to get back home, but I spent a lot of the Christmas just kind of looking after them and making sure they were okay. So it wasn't the best circumstances, but it is what it is. We'd started, we, I think we'd set off to go back when they announced that the Christmas, like the five day window had been lifted. So we sort of had to frantically book a hotel. Um, and then when we finally did, um, we spent Christmas with my partner's parents and we finally saw them and they revealed that they'd had a COVID exposure, but they didn't want to tell us because they thought we wouldn't come see them. So then that was quite a challenging kind of conversation to have. And his mum had just had a huge operation on her leg. And so she was quite um, conscious that I think the cast was too tight and she thought she had an infection. So we were in A&E on Christmas Day. It was all uh, it was all quite dramatic, but everyone's fine. <laughs> everyone's fine I'm glad it, I'm glad that Christmas is behind us to be honest and then I guess you know we want to talk a bit more about this and in terms of the more recent events and things that have been happening with the second wave and the fact that that Covid hasn't really disappeared and hasn't really ended so so how has it progressed for you what what's your current situation in terms of your studies your working environment what are you all up to I'll be honest, I say with the first lockdown, excluding the external circumstances and everything, I was almost grateful for it because I felt like my life had been going at about 200 miles per hour. And I feel like this is just the break that I was never going to give myself. And somehow I couldn't go out. I, I could literally just stay at home and just finally be still almost. Um, and I used the time to kind of, I was like, oh, I can focus on my career, focus on things like that, whatever, self-care. Um, so I was almost grateful for the first lockdown, but then the second one came and then the third one and almost the novelty wears off. And then now it's coming to this lockdown and it's just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I'd say that the, probably this, this most recent lockdown has been definitely the most difficult one. Well, I mean, that leads quite nicely to our next section. Um, first of all, I can't imagine what it must be like for you but then at the same time a lot of what you're saying resonates with um, my experience um, and I guess Jill's experience as well. Um, for those of you listening you, you may know, remember that Jill's out of program doing a PhD and out of program as well and it, it's, it's different and um, just to pick up on the point that you just made Maria about how in the first lockdown you're almost like okay this is this is full of anxiety 
but I'm resting a little bit, so it's fine. And then the second one comes and then the third one comes and it almost feels like it's never going to end. So, um, I mean, I certainly can see that the feelings of hopelessness are real some days. But we'll touch on that a little bit later. Let's focus a bit on the positives, if if you like. Um, So one positive for me in this lockdown is remote working and how the digital age has marched on and how I don't have a massive commute. I hate my commute. It's terrible. So why don't I come to you, Amrutha? Are there any new skills that you've learned through working through a pandemic, um, digital or otherwise? I guess one thing would be time management um I don't know even though everything has been online somehow I feel like there's a lot more going on and just managing my time um especially since we can't really go to libraries or anything like that I've learned to focus better in my own space and that's something that I've never really done before okay and yeah just from a clinical point of view um if you don't mind me asking, in caring for your parents, were there any new clinical or managerial skills that you you learned or things you did that you didn't think you would have been able to do before? Not necessarily this time, because my parents have been ill before, so I have um, had the experience of caring for them before, just not in this particular context. Yeah, I guess just um, I'm doing, I did a lot more of the household stuff and cooking and cleaning and all that kind of thing. Um, making sure they're okay making sure they because they really didn't eat much while they were ill so just making sure that they had like, some energy um, I guess it's more difficult when it's your family than if it's someone that you don't necessarily know so just that emotional aspect was quite different difficult but they're fine now and it's all good so it's okay well, I'm, I'm really glad that they're fine um why don't I come to you, Felicity? I mean, you mentioned earlier about online learning and the difference between clinical and not. What has online learning been like for you and sort of staying at home? Do you miss going to lectures or? So I've had a bit of a mixed experience. Um, in March, when the first lockdown was announced, um, it took about probably only a week to 10 days before they started having uh sort of online offerings again I say offerings because none of it was compulsory um which I told myself it was because I think I wouldn't have gone otherwise and I think I it was really helpful to go to keep the routine because otherwise it would have just been there's no way to tell the days apart and um the lockdown was really welcome for me as as well um I don't know if I would have made it through because I'm a graduate my first year of med school was two years in one um with no science background so it was just breakneck speed so to finally get that chance to just do it all at my own pace was such a relief and everyone was adapting and everyone was very forgiving um and so it was fine it was it was tough but it was fine and then like I said last September I came back when my teaching was face to face then in January I came back to Newcastle and teaching was online again and there's still a lot of kind of I call it like seance zoom a lot of can you hear me are you there you know a lot of sort of tech worries um mostly fine sometimes hard to get engagement I think I really I find it really difficult when people don't have their cameras on um and I know a lot of sort of teaching staff find it difficult to talk to this sort of you know just to talk into the abyss um and then now um the current rotation I'm on they're much keener to have us in for teaching which I find I'm not too comfortable with anymore um we had they had us in for teaching today and it was not teaching that needed to be done face to face I think clinical skills absolutely but there's the part of me that's like the 20 medical students need to be brought in from all over the county into a hospital I don't think they do so I think it's going to be quite tough going back to face to face teaching yeah um, I totally agree anytime I see groups of more than five people gathered together I automatically have this pain in my chest that I just can't explain and even watching television now, when I watch old concerts and there's thousands of people in, in an auditorium, I keep saying things like, oh my, there's COVID, there is COVID, stay far apart. But of course, that was like two years ago, three years ago. Um, I'm interested in um, assessments. Um, Donia and Tamara, I think you mentioned um, about examinations. Can I ask you, Donia, how did assessments change in this era? Have you had to do anything online? 
So um, we have our finals coming up in June, which is now completely online. Um, it was supposed to be multiple choice and short answer questions, but we've now got multiple choice questions. And we had a mock exam in December, I think it was. And everyone was basically crying at the end of it. Like, it's awful because <laughs> they're using a new system. I think they've got a bank of questions from like all over the country and they just select questions from there. So <laughs> that's going to be an exciting experience. Um, and our OSCE wise, they're split over three days. So we've got mini OSCEs now over, over the whole of June. So it's just like prolonged our exam week and we've got a whole month to stress instead of a whole week. Yeah. yeah. That, that sounds rather terrible. I mean, tomorrow I can see you shaking your head. Um, were you on the <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm still coming to terms with it. I know that that's going to be essentially, that's how we're going to be assessed. Um, but I've got a lot of worries, you know, um, you know, we have to, I mean, as far as being at home, so, you know, internet, like technical difficulties, that kind of thing. Um, I personally like flicking through all, you know, like paper. And if I can't, if I don't like a question, I don't want to throw myself off and I'll, I'll keep going and then I'll come back to it. But it's not as easy to do that. Um, when we did the mock, a lot of people found that the time management, it, it was just off. Um, a lot of people didn't finish so it is it is a huge worry um they are we have got um sort of any portfolio to do as we go on placement now and that was um essential for the final years but they made they're making fourth years do it now and we have to get things signed off um in every block um and they're saying that so if we don't do exams they can use that as as a, as a backup, really. I'm hoping it's probably not going to happen, but I'm hoping that they just don't do the OSCEs and they look at our assessment and look at our e-portfolio um, because we, even the OSCEs, it's going to be completely different to what we've done in the past. Um, I know younger years are going through their OSCEs now and they're having to watch videos or use a lot more models and things like that. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just not the same. <laughs> so I am, I am quite worried. I wanna to touch upon that worry a little bit more because I think we underestimate um, the impact of this disruption, you know, when we're sort of reeling off all of the things that have changed. Um, they're all very real and very valid experiences but what we don't often think about is how that affects you and what you're doing and you mentioned right at the beginning of the first wave when suddenly all of your exams were cancelled and Felicity I know you had two exams one that you were um you know frantically preparing for uh, and there was something that happened with that was there yeah so we had um I mean, in the first lockdown, we were told all our exams were cancelled. So we were rejoicing and then they were uncancelled. So that's a whole new level of terror. Um, and then in December, we had two rounds of exams. Um, so we had like written clinical skills exam and like a multiple choice style and whole new world for all of us. And we were told the day after we did done the written skills one that it wasn't going to count, um, which is <laughs> the most horrible feeling. Um they said there were just too many errors um, with the system, but we've all had feedback on our answers. So at least there is some good to come from it. And they sort of reframed it as a, a formative assessment. But we've been told all our summer exams are going to be written in person. That's the plan. That's the plan, which um, they're very clear that that's not set in stone, but that's the plan. And I'm really curious when you um, have these sort of interactions with your supervisors, with people at the university, does it feel like there's an acknowledgement of how difficult this is? Does it feel like they recognize the impact of sudden cancellations or changing the way things work? Do they acknowledge the anxiety that comes with that, do you think? I think the emails are very carefully worded and I think I think they do try and they do try and acknowledge. I think you only really know what it feels like when you're on the receiving end of it. I had a lot of friends who were very angry. Um, I felt betrayed almost um, which isn't something I felt I think I'm a bit more accepting that that was new to us and there were high chances that it was going to go wrong and weren't we lucky that the other one did count and um, but I know a lot of people were quite hurt and angry and it does feel like your efforts been thrown away um, but the university is 
they've said the right things. And just um, while we're kind of in this direction, I know by the fact that you're all here talking to me and that I know some of you, just how um, high achieving and high performing and how much you all care about your results. And I know that for sure. And certainly when I spoke to you last time, Maria, one of the first things you said to me was that I'm just really worried that I'm falling behind. Tell me a bit more about that. What is, what is that feeling and, and what is that bringing with it at this time? So I'm a logical thinker and I think the GMC have introduced like certain GMC mandated hours that you have to have in clinics and on the wards in order to become a competent doctor. And if you just look at the numbers, I just felt like I, I wasn't reaching that threshold. And by the time I graduate, I could sleep in the hospital and I probably won't catch up the number of hours that we haven't had on the wards for the teaching. Um, and being in my first clinical year, I've realized there are some things you just can't learn from a book. And I was just a bit anxious of, I'm going to be a doctor in about <laughs> two years. How, how am I going to learn? How am I going to become a competent doctor? And all the other doctors on the wards are saying, you'll never feel ready to be a doctor. Like <laughs> you could pass every exam, get first SL or whatever, but you'll never feel ready to be a doctor until you start, which I understand, but it, it just doesn't shake that feeling of like, I'm not learning enough. I'm not learning what I should be. I'm not where I should be um, at the stage of my training. That is so relatable. Um, as you guys know, Jill and I are surgeons and um, surgery is one of the last few pure craft specialties. And the more you do, the better you get. And the more experience you have, the more confident you feel at dealing with things. Um, and we're also both in specialties that um, are quite niche. So Jill's doing cardiothoracics and I'm doing pediatric surgery. So when the rare things come, they're usually super, super rare. And that is a huge concern amongst trainees in surgery about the lack of experience, because um, when you get a bit more senior, you think, well, I'm going to be a consultant in a few years. If I can't do X, Y, Z, how can I practice? How can I be safe? So I think it's really important that we're highlighting that it's not just at the senior stages that we're feeling this. It's you guys as well. Um, but surprisingly, I was interested to, to see with the news um, today that medical student applications are at an all time high. Um, it'd be interesting to talk to you. We'll talk about that a little bit later about how you feel about continuing medicine. Um, but I'll, I'll well, let's not give it all away right away. Let's let's kind of keep on track. Um, show of hands, did anyone take on any sort of NHS-related jobs, duties, nursing, HCA, anything like that during the pandemic? Anyone? I tried. I was a nurse before I came to med school. Um, and so I applied to my local trust, um, but they didn't want me. So I, I just focused on my work instead. Wow, that's interesting. Um, what's about on the wards? I know um, Felicity, you mentioned a bit about taking bloods and the like, but um, did anyone you know, step up to try and assist the healthcare professionals there actively? And, you know, what was what was the process? Anyone at all, show of hands? No? I applied for the vaccination scheme as well. Um, and that was quite a few hoops to jump through. And in the end, it just felt a bit like, I don't know if my effort would be better spent doing other things. I think because I hadn't had any clinical experience in doing bloods when the first lockdown hit, I was like, I'm not offering to do phlebotomy. I've only ever done it on a plastic arm. That is very, very interesting. Um, I also applied for the vaccination scheme. I got in and um, they have not called on me. Yeah, that's the we're same the same. <laughs> so, we, so has everyone basically just been put on the shelf? <laughs> Rejection, isn't it? They just don't want us to... <laughs> Sorry, Tamara, you were saying... Um, yeah, I was just saying, I mean, Felicity said that uh, about like phlebotomy and things, whilst we're on wards and things like that, we are quite hands on with phlebotomies and, and cannulations and that kind of thing when we are actually, um, yeah, on wards and things. So that's quite handy. Amrusa, are you happy to share a little bit about your experience? Just because I know we've talked about this before. Yeah, um, so part of my placement was replaced with ICU shifts on the COVID wards. Um, so I think for most of the people in our year, so my friend who was supposed to have three weeks of cardiology 
two of those weeks were on ICU. One of those weeks was online learning. So she hasn't actually seen any patients with any like cardiology signs or anything. Um, but yeah, anyway, I had two weeks in January of ICU. Um, at first it was just um, running ABGs, kind of cleaning patients, cleaning desks and everything, getting things for people. Um, but as the weeks went on, we kind of were a bit more hands-on, um, actually taking blood, drawing up drugs, signing things and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I think everyone's had like mixed experiences. Like I've definitely learned a lot on ICU, but I have seen some things that are you know, quite difficult to see, um, especially because the patients are so, so ill. Like I haven't really seen people that ill before. Um, and also I noticed how it's not just a new experience for us as medical students. I've seen doctors who've been redeployed in ICU and they don't really know what they're doing either in a sense. So I've like my medical students and I have just been helping them do observations and teaching them how to run ABGs. And so it's just quite, it's quite strange to see, but we're all kind of working together at an equal level. So I know when we talked about this before, there's the, there's, there's absolutely those two sides of that, isn't there? That you are feeling useful and positive and like you can contribute to this environment and also pick up some of those skills, which, you know, we've talked about, I know lots of doctors who don't have the skills to draw up medications and start infusions, et cetera. So they're really valuable things, but perhaps as well at the same time as you're supporting the other junior doctors, they are then, they don't have the capacity to be able to support you because they are using up all of their capacity to cope with this very new, very difficult situation. So I'm really curious to talk a bit about how that has worked. You know, where is the support? Where do you, what do you do when you go home at night? Who do you talk to? How does the shift end? Who looks after you? Who asks you if you're okay? Um, have there been formal structures for that? Or is it just, you know, feel free to cope? Um, I think I've been quite lucky in the fact that my flatmates are also medical students and we're in the same bubble. So we're usually put in the same area. So we're able to kind of talk to each other about our experiences and what we've done. Um, I think in terms of the university, they always recommend going to student support if we need anything. Um, as far as I know, that's really about it in terms of I think at some point they sent an email, email about mild, mindfulness, um, but that's really it. I don't know exactly who we're supposed to talk to if we see something that we kind of want to get off our chest. I don't know if Maria has like anything about that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we all received that email and it received a phone call from UCL a couple of weeks ago. I was like, who is this? So, oh, hi, we're from UCL Student Support. We're just calling all the students to check up on their welfare. Like, are you okay? I think they're basically checking if anyone's suicidal um, or like really, really severe. Um, and I was like, yeah, just a bit down because of lockdown, whatever. And they're like, okay, great. Uh, thank you. Bye. <laughs> um, so that was the extent of it. Um, but... oh, that's um, interesting. Um, I guess from the medical side, um, I don't know if your experience was a little bit different, Jill, but uh, I was certainly clinical when the lockdown hit. And at the start, um, there wasn't very much. And then all of a sudden, there's all these huge amounts of web-based resources and you don't know how much or how little to engage with them. But um, I, I don't know, it, it's maybe a little bit of a different beast in that you guys are getting forgotten because you're still part of the clinical team. And I'm glad, Amrutha, you had that experience that you felt part of the team, but um, it, it's really shocking how little there is out there. Um, I'm going to go to Doing and um, Tamara because I know from the quality and diversity work we've been going through, there is it's often difficult to identify who to talk to about certain things in the university. How did Aberdeen do in terms of um, well-being and support? Was there, was it a better experience than Maria and Amrutha? I think it's very similar to um, Amrutha and Maria because we received a lot of emails about student support and mindfulness and well-being. Um, but I don't think medical students tend to take that up much. Um, they prefer to just talk to each other about it because mm -hmm. we're all and we'll do all experience it together. 
um, but the medical society has been holding like mindfulness sessions, which I think they try to get students to engage in. I don't know how often students do engage in it, but mm. for me, it's just really talking to my colleagues that helps me. Okay. Uh, what about you, Felicity, in Newcastle? Anything different to what the guys have experienced? So in Carlisle, we had a re we had really great pastoral support, um, and I sort of used her. Uh, she's um, she's a, a gynaecologist who I think was new to the role, but she was fabulous. Um, and I um, I actually during sort of lockdown, I had a relapse in my eating disorder and had to go back into services, which was really useful because one thing is even though you're there to talk about eating and things, you can also talk about having a rough day. So it was the support that I really needed. Um, and she was excellent. Um, so that was great. I do, I live with my partner who's a student nurse, so we can sort of talk shop if we need to. Um, and we get the emails about using sort of student services as well. And I agree, I don't know how high the uptake is. I've not used them sort of since lockdown. Thank you so much for being so honest and candid about that. Can I ask you, Felicity, as somebody who's actually used some of these services um, and with your sort of uh, mental health experience as well, what do you think the barriers would be to people seeking help? So why do you think that the uptake is not that great? I think a lot of these services have reputations that precede them which might not always be glowing because all it takes is one person having a, a negative experience um, and it'll put it'll put a lot of people off um i think also there is a sense of disconnect with the university because we're not on campuses um and i think the medical student identity does sit somewhere between the trust and the university um i tried to attend or I did actually attend a Schwartz round recently it wasn't held at my trust it was held at a neighboring trust and that was quite an administrative process just sort of trying to show up and as medical students I've been in I think three trusts already this year so there's different processes and they all offer support but it's like I don't really know I don't know who the best person is to go to and yesterday I was in theatres and I had quite um I saw quite a, a procedure that I found quite traumatic and I I don't know who to speak to about that so as much as I've had really good support I would echo what everyone else has said in terms of when something quite specific happens, I don't, I don't actually know who the right person to speak to is. I think I, I would just um, mirror that uh, from my own experiences. The first thing being that I have sought professional help and uh, therapy and counselling for um, my own uh, issues around grief. And then a couple of months in, my therapist pointed out to me that we hadn't actually mentioned bereavement at all. All we'd ever talked about was work. Um, and that was a really eye-opening thing for me that many of us who find ourselves seeking that help are pushed into doing it because of something, you know, reasonably serious and catastrophic, or we, we recognize that we need help with that. Whereas, and once we get that, we realize what a valuable resource it is. And we go back to it time and time again for some of those more day-to-day -day coping conversations that we might have. Whereas if you've never experienced that, these services and these um, uh, systems and things that are in place can seem quite alien and quite um, abstract and distinct and perhaps something for other people, not for me. I don't need that. Uh, it's a shame if I end up needing that rather than it being a positive thing that, that people need. Um, and I, I think just to echo the, the sort of real um, momentum to push this conversation forward was the discussion um, that we had, Amrita, where I was really moved by all of these experiences that you were all talking about. Um, feelings of burnout, feeling like um, you perhaps weren't talking to people, feeling like you didn't know where to go to for help and perhaps just not going for help anyway because it was easier that way and you could just put it to the back of your mind and keep going and keep going. And the reason that moved me, because I was like, oh, my goodness, well, that's the last 10 years of clinical practice for me. And it moved me because I thought, my goodness, we're breaking you. <laughs> you know, I've I've sort of grown up in this culture of surgery and I've learned how to deal with some of these things and I've learned to accept some things and change some things. And it really hit home to me that, oh, my gosh, we're doing this to you guys now. We're doing this to you as undergraduates before you've even started your work. 
Uh, and that was why I think we really need to be talking about this as a community because, um, you know, I don't want to break you. I want you all to be the fabulous colleagues of the future that I know you will be. <laughs> very well put. Um, I guess the only other thing to add to that very eloquent speech is um, I think there's a stigma associated still with mental health and with seeking services and I, I know I personally sometimes get these millions of emails and just roll my eyes a little bit because you don't know how much investment is going into it but more than that you sometimes feel a bit like you failed if you have to consult these services and I think we need to change the conversation. Now um, with regards to breaking you guys I hope we haven't but let's see if we have. Um, Maria, has the pandemic changed your perception of medicine and whether you want to carry on doing it? Um, it hasn't changed whether or not I want to continue in medicine at all. If anything, it's kind of, it's reaffirmed what I already knew about the important role that all medical professional and healthcare professionals play in society. But I would say I was always so proud of the NHS and I continue to be but I think the pandemic highlighted a lot of a lot of issues and it's no fault of the institution I think it's higher up much much higher up and it was just so heartbreaking to see the state that the NHS got to um, and it, it really made me think a lot about like this is the institution I'm going to work for this is the institution I'm going to dedicate my entire life to and like they, they can't give their own professionals PPE my, my dad got COVID because he, he was literally put on COVID wards with no PPE. And he ended up being hospitalised with COVID because he was given no PPE. So that was a huge source of just anger and frustration and something that's so preventable and something that never should have happened. Um, but it, it, it made me even more prouder to say that hopefully one day I'll be working in that profession. Well, that's really lovely to hear despite everything. Um, what about you, Amri? The same question. Has it changed your desire to do medicine or are you sticking with it? Um, I think it hasn't really changed my desire, but it has kind of given me a wider perspective on like just working life and burnout and like the mental health mental health aspect of working in a hospital, um, especially being in ICU, seeing um, you know, the fact that patients die every day and that's kind of, you see it, but then you just have to put it in the back of your mind because you have to just keep working and make sure the next patient's okay. Um, like, I realised that it's something that I can, it's possible to get through, but yeah, I don't know. I just hope that I still have the same sort of passion and stuff that I've at the beginning I, don't, I hope I don't get like more cynical or desensitized to everything basically well, I really hope so uh, well really hope not um, I remember when I was a medical student in Newcastle um, instead of clinical and pre-clinical pre we used to call it cynical and pre-cynical don't be like that mm -hmm. um, what about you Tamara same question um it hasn't changed my desire to study medicine I think it's only fueled it and it's similar to what Anruta and, and Maria were saying um, it's definitely highlighted to me the importance of my own sort of mental health my own self-care and I do need to take time out to make sure that I'm taking care of myself because it's so easy to kind of get warped in to, to this kind of lifestyle and not think about um, how you're doing. Um, so it's definitely taught me to take, take time out and just kind of focus on myself at times. And that's the only way to really get through. Otherwise, you know, there will be times where we'll burn out and things like that. And that's not good for us. And it's not good for, for when we're working and, and patients and things as well. So that's very true. I can't stress the importance of importance of self care enough. What about you, Donny? Same question. Um, it's exactly the same as everyone else has said. It's really heightened my desire to study medicine. 
But then I also recognised that I wasn't working in the middle of the pandemic or the height of the pandemic. So I don't know if my perception would change if I was actually on a ward, on a COVID ward, seeing people die every day. Um, but I definitely do want to persist in this career. I think it's a great career and it showed like the way everyone collected together and continued working or came off retirement to contribute mm-hmm. to the NHS during the height of this pandemic was the most beautiful thing I've seen in humanity, I think. And I, I want to be part of that system. Yeah, fantastic. And last but not least, Felicity. So I've kind of got two answers to the question. And um, the first is that I completely agree with Tamara. It's made me realise that the meaning of my life isn't medicine. The meaning of my life is what I do outside of med school. So I've got back into dancing. I've got back into spending time in nature. I'm very into mushrooms right now. Um, and that's where the meaning comes in my life. It's not where I'm in the hospital. But in terms of my sort of second answer is it's made me want to stick in medicine because it's made me quite angry. Um, and I think there's some really damaging narratives about kind of doctors. I think I read this amazing tweet from uh, Emily Friedenmaker. She's a, a doctor in, I think, Kentucky. She said, why do we always talk about stress harming patients? Why isn't it enough that stress harms doctors? I think we need to talk about that. You know, if I flip that idea of breaking you on its head uh, and turn that around, the other thing that always blows my mind when I talk to all of you is that you are far more aware of things than I was. And I don't want to sound like a grandma, I'm not that old. But this idea that you guys are already familiar with this language of well-being, burnout, looking after yourselves. I think it's absolutely right, Felicity, that you point out that we do often talk about looking after ourselves to do the best for our patients, when actually we all have a right to do a job and to feel safe and happy and healthy in our workplace. and that's for us. And so I'm just really conscious to talk to all of you a bit more about um, what is this understanding that you have of burnout? You know, what does that look like to you? Um, I know, Maria, you mentioned burnout to me a couple of weeks ago. So what does it mean to you? What does it feel like? What's contributed to bur- to you feeling this burnout phenom- phenomenon <laughs> during the pandemic? So yeah, when I said I was feeling burnt out and you asked me, you're like, why, why do you think that? I'd say a couple of things that I noticed is things I once loved have become a chore. Um, and they didn't really, they didn't spark that joy that they once did for me. I found myself apologizing a lot to my friends. If it's, sorry I missed your call, I was so tired, sorry I haven't been here, sorry I was a bit out of it when we, when we spoke. And I just, this consistent pattern and I kept apologizing. Um, and just tired, not sleepy tired, but just tired. You know, when someone asks you, how are you doing? You're like, oh, I'm just tired. I'm just tired, I'm just tired. And I kept, found myself repeating that again and again and again over quite a while. Um, and then that made me think, hold up. <laughs> Maybe I'm a little bit burnt out at the moment. Um, yeah. I'd say that's that's what I noticed. Amrita's nodding as well. Is that is that something that's familiar to you? This sort of constant exhaustion and not finding joy in things that we used to find joy in. Yeah, definitely. I think because um, I have been, you know, struggling with my mental health. I think for the past two years, I'd say so. Those kind of feelings are something that I've gone through quite a bit, but especially with the first lockdown and the second lockdown and third lockdown, I think it just made it much more difficult to try and find ways to get out of it. So, Because we couldn't really, can't go see your friends, you can't really go outside for long unless you have a reason. And so the like coping mechanisms that I used to have to try and feel better, I wasn't able to do. Um, so it was just finding other ways to kind of get through the day was something that was quite new. Doran, you're nodding as well. Yeah, um, it's what they both said. And I, I would notice that my messages will start to build up on my phone. Or I'd be avoiding people's call just because I don't have the energy to talk to anyone at the moment. Um, I remember a month and a half ago, my granddad passed away and I was just like, I, I don't want to talk to anyone. I just want to just lie in bed and do nothing all day. And then we'd have weeks at university where you wouldn't need to go into university all week. 
And then it wouldn't be until the next time I got uni that I'd be like, I haven't been outside in a week now. <laughs> you know, I haven't had fresh air in a week and this, is, this isn't good. So it's just trying to find new coping mechanisms um, during a lockdown. <laughs> And I think certainly I'll come on to those coping mechanisms in a second, because you obviously, as I've said, you all have this incredible insight um, to all of this and you're brilliant at talking about this. Um, but I just wonder one of some of the other things we've talked about, there is no one single thing that's making you feel awful, but it's that collection of pressures and perhaps multiple pressures coming at any one time. Uh, and Amrutha, we talked about this in the sense that you know, going and working on the COVID ward would have been okay if it wasn't followed up by several emails reminding you that you had a deadline tomorrow for an assignment. You know, that's the thing that this build up. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Can you describe how all of that came about? Yeah. Um, so I guess one thing is that because I'm not used to working long hours in a hospital, getting used to that environment was one thing. And then also trying to keep up with my uni work, um, we have like an assignment once every month and then sometimes we have essays that we need to do and trying to do that as well as revising what I need for my placement and then also trying to rest after um, a COVID ward. It was just, it felt like a lot and we're still not really sure how our exams are going to be set this year. Um, I think we got an email recently where they said that they were going to try and make a team of people to figure out what um, opportunities that we've lost this year in terms of our learning and try and set our exams accordingly but it hasn't been very clear so I don't really know what to expect and that uncertainty has also kind of been a bit stressful because I don't really know how to prepare for my exams and I know they're not the most important thing in the world right now but they are important like I need to pass the year so that I can go to next year and then hopefully graduate and become a doctor. Yeah. I'm just hearing a lot of really difficult stories today and I'm just trying to think back to when I was a medical student it was hard enough just being a regular medical student but that uncertainty of not knowing how you're going to be assessed when why that's that's really difficult and I feel for you guys um but despite all these difficulties, um, I mentioned before that in the news that people, more people than ever are applying to medical school. Um, I wonder if maybe part of it is, as you said, this pride in the NHS and wanting to contribute. But if I come to you, Maria, why do you think more people are applying to medical school? Are you surprised by this? I think it's quite an interesting paradox because I think a lot of people are applying, a lot more people are applying because if anything, healthcare workers have been become like heroes almost. They're like, oh, I, I want to be like that. But then you look at the other end and you look at the, the healthcare heroes and the healthcare professionals and they're so exhausted, so burnt out. And it will be interesting to see over the next couple of years how many leave the profession because of this romanticised view of what it is to be a healthcare worker, especially in the NHS and um, where we are right now. So... That's what I think. I really mirror Jill's um, assessment of you guys that you are so much more aware than I ever was at your age, how perceptive that answer was. Um, I saw you nodding your head, Felicity. Do you have a similar view or an alternate view to Maria's? I think Maria said it better than I ever could. I think it's that hearing narrative, which is simultaneously inspiring and so, so damaging. I think it really feeds into that idea of we are a hero, you can't suffer. Like you, you need to be seen to take every blow from the, you know, the super villain and, and keep going. Um, it's a little bit like cannon fodder, but I don't want to go too into that because that's quite a depressing thought. But I think Maria put it really well. I think as well, and we're going to try and touch upon this uh, at the Wellbeing Week, um, this idea that our identity, whether it is, an, is our identity as a hero or not, that our identity is so wrapped up in our jobs. Uh, and you guys have, have touched upon this already, this idea of, um, you know, if I'm not a medical student, who else am I? Like, what else have I got? What else am I doing? Uh, if I'm not my career, what have I got? And I think that, again, is a very dangerous, vulnerable place to be. And Felicity, you mentioned about how this pandemic has allowed you to just think about the things that you do outside of work and value those a little bit more. Um, I don't know if anyone else has had a similar experience where they've 
perhaps had a think about as much as they are very happy to carry on and be medical students and become doctors has anyone thought about mm, what's my life like outside of here um yeah i have um the first lockdown uh, i think i spent the first two weeks doing nothing and then i was like okay this can't carry on so then my cousin kept sending me these workout videos on youtube and i was like okay let me just try it one day and then by the end of the lockdown, I absolutely love exercise. <laughs> if you asked me a year ago, I wouldn't have even gone outside for a walk. So um, that really is sparked up that. And I, I'm really missing the gym right now. And I'm so excited for it to come back. So finding your identity outside of being a doctor is so important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, it was said earlier on, I think, I think across the board for medical students, the first lockdown was really it was positive for us to take a step back and actually evaluate like, you know, our lives and kind of what is important to us and um, just to stop going a hundred miles per hour. Um, so, I mean, similar to Doy and I came out with new hobbies and things that I enjoyed. Um, and I also missed the gym. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, yeah and you know things like exercise and things like that helps me kind of keep going and and helps my mental health and yeah so I think that leads us really nicely on to the final point of this and uh, as much as I don't want to always be the one to end on a positive note but you guys as I said are so much more aware of this and in my opinion, so much better than we were at recognizing and correcting some of these things and taking care of yourself. So why don't we to finish, uh, just go around and tell us a little bit about what it is you value outside of work, what it is that you're doing to look after yourselves at the moment for you, for your own benefit to help you out at the moment. So Maria, let's start with you. Um, I love to cook. So I've been cooking a lot more. I've upgraded from my pesto pasta, which I used to live off in first year, which has been wonderful. And I've always been quite artistically inclined. I think that's why I'm so inclined towards surgery. And I'm really rekindling that love that I once had when I was like in, in my teenage years and in my A-levels. So that's been really wonderful to find again. Right, Um. It's actually quite similar to Maria. I've started cooking a lot more, like experimenting with different cuisines that I guess because we can't go out to restaurants, I've been trying to make the food that I'd want to eat if I could go out. Um, as well as that, I don't know, I've just started um, like colouring again and just sketching and that kind of thing. And it, I haven't really done that since my GCSEs because A-levels, I was so focused on my application for university and exams and all that kind of thing and then once I'm at uni I was trying to you know, build, up, build up my portfolio and do all that kind of thing whereas now I can kind of go back to the things I used to enjoy so it's been nice in that aspect. Um, I've talked about it a bit already and it's really interesting to hear people talking about drawing because I went to like a, a feminist life drawings class the other day and it was life-changing so I consider myself a semi-pro at this point it's been about a week so <laughs> definitely semi-pro yeah really enjoying life drawing yoga ballet going out in nature exclusively non-hallucinogenic mushrooms <laughs> and tomorrow Similar to everyone else, really, going on walks and working out and drawing. I've started journaling, um, not every day, <laughs> but sometimes it's nice to kind of put thoughts um, to paper. And um, I take time out to speak with family and friends more. I think it's so easy to kind of get, I don't know, warped up in in everyday life um but during lockdown I've been able to kind of scale back and actually spend spend time and speak with my friends and and rekindle relationships and things um which has is definitely has definitely helped me um it's kind of um it's reminded me that I've got people there to speak to you know um if if I need to um, and I think it's it was so easy to kind of forget that when you're just constantly studying, you're constantly just going at the speed of light. So, yeah. 
Um, and I would say, similar to everyone, um, first and foremost, I've been cooking like traditional foods from back home in Nigeria. Learning how to cook that has been really enjoyable, both eating and cooking. <laughs> um, exercise, like I mentioned earlier, I absolutely love now. Um, and also getting back into my music. I absolutely loved music when I was younger. So like just listening to like the actual beats and sounds of songs and actually I'm about to buy the guitar so I can start practicing. So I'm just even taking 30 minutes out of my day just to do that. I can't wait. All very important things. And it's nice to see such varied um, interests amongst our group. Now, I think, uh, again, just being the eternal optimist, well, I try and be, um, I think we should just end on just one little message from each of you. So one thing you think that we can all do better to look after each other, so not just yourself. So for me, it would be reaching out to people more and being more proactive. I don't really know what else to say other than sort of reaching out. I think it's really hard when you've got a really full day ahead of you and you know that you don't even have five minutes to spare for a cup of tea to sort of stop someone and say, you look like you're having a really rotten time, do you want to chat? But I think if we can that would be helpful there's a proverb if you should do 10 minutes of meditation a day unless you're really busy in which case you should do an hour and I think if we could sort of use that mentality and apply that to looking out for each other I think there's something in that fantastic what about you Amrutha I guess it's quite a similar thing reaching out and just being patient I guess I realized um like the limited time I've been in the hospital how patient everyone is with each other and it just makes the day a bit easier because everyone is trying their best and not especially at the beginning when I was working like I didn't know where things were or what I was doing I was like completely lost but because people were so patient with me I was able to kind of get better and so I really appreciate how patient people have been so far throughout my school school. Great. Um, Don't you? Um, I would say, again, remember that everyone's going through their own issues and you don't know what people are going through. So if someone is snapping at you, there could be something going on. But also when you're reaching out to people, instead of just being like, oh, how are you doing? Like, how are you really doing? And open up that conversation. Very, very wise words. Tamara? I mean, I can't say it any better than everyone else has said it, really. Um, definitely reach out to people be more understanding and um, because like Joanne said everyone's going through their own own journey and um, and people may you know reply and say they're fine but you know asking them well no actually are you, are you really fine how are you really doing um, and like I've said be patient with everyone um, yeah okay Maria the first thing that came to mind was, you know, when you're on a plane and they tell you to put your oxygen mask on before you help anyone else. I think that's the same. If you can't, you can't give when you're empty and you're running on zero fuel, it's only going to completely burn you out. So just take care of yourself and it will be okay. It will be okay. What a lovely way to end things. I'll go to you, Jill, for final thoughts since... You are the originator of the Wellbeing Week teaser webinar of Seriously, How Are You Doing? So I know you'll have some great thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, I just couldn't have said any of those things any better. And I think they're all such valid points. Uh, And again, if we can use those things, just imagine how much better we would all be feeling about our day-to-day lives and our working lives and how much more we would have to give to other people if we could just take better care of ourselves and a little bit better care of each other and you've all highlighted brilliantly um, the realities of that and I think just to finish up and echo some of the other things that we've said I certainly feel that my um, my thing in answer to that question is very much this idea of admitting to things and being open and honest with everyone about my own vulnerability. Um, I've stopped pretending now. I am what I am. I can still be a successful person, a good surgeon, and acknowledge that that hasn't always been easy. And so for me, what I think we all need to be a bit better at is exactly as you guys have done today, and I can't thank you enough for being so open and honest, but to role model to others how to be that way. Uh, And if we can all acknowledge those vulnerabilities a bit more, we make a bit more space for all different types of experiences, all different types of people, 
more diversity, more inclusion, and that to me can only really be a positive thing. So thank you for bringing that openness and honesty here today and for talking. And I'm sure we haven't heard the last of you. Um, I'm sure we'll all be in touch and that there'll be lots more uh, conversations uh, that will come out of this. Here, here. Couldn't have said it any better. So um, again, thank you to all you lovely ladies for giving up your time and as Jill said, being so honest. And until next time, everyone, stay safe and be kind to each other. <laughs>